And good afternoon. You're listening to 94.1 FM KPFA here in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who in light, light them up, boys, there's your picture, drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Ah. Today is uh, Tuesday, August the 27th, 2013. I have some reviews here, but I just, I got, I, I got my mail here today, and I'm just so crabby. <laughs> I have this note, and this fellow says that he can't start reading a book that I recommended to him, so I should just tell him what it's about, you know. Then he can decide whether it's worth the trouble, damn it. There's no need to finish books. Um, you can tell, you know, read the first page, the last page, and a few paragraphs or pages in the middle. Then, you know, you'll know whether it's worth, worth continuing, you know, if it exudes boredom, uh, then I think you can, you can figure it's not worth the trouble, but, you know, it won't tell you if the book is really good, but it will certainly tell you if it's a dud, uh, it's not necessary to finish a book. I remember Bill Clinton once saying, you never finish books. <laughs> that shows. Anyway, there's somebody, I think, Francis Bacon, who said, uh, some books are to be tasted, some swallowed, and uh, a rare few to be chewed and digested. Uh, anyway, I'm just... Uh, wringing my hands over that that notion that so many people I know say that they they can't start. I don't know. Just, you know, what is that? Take a taste. Uh, skim the thing. Get a general impression. It's not, what is it? It's, it's not, um, it's not school, boys and girls. It's not school. You can, you can get a little taste of a thing. And uh, then, of course, you can go to cocktail parties and pretend you've read it. Never mind. Today, as I said, is August the 27th, which means that everyone, well, most of us, are celebrating the half century that has passed since the March on Washington, D.C., and the Martin Luther King speech and civil rights, you know, an ongoing struggle. We don't win, we just change the world. Uh, All this talk about those years of joyous activism and the grim realities, the suffering of so many patriots, 
All that is this mix, a contradictory mix sometimes. It's part nostalgia and regret, some revision and review. Yes, review my notes just once more. Perspective is never easy, especially for young people who weren't there at the time. Uh, I want to talk first about something that, I, I don't know, it's history. And I think it lends perspective, at least it lends perspective to me. I'm talking about an old movie. It hit me very hard when I was uh, 17, 18. Uh, I was old enough to see that there were cliches and that uh, it was reductive. There were social messages, uh, you know, the Judeo-Christian myth that Hollywood put out in the 40s. Uh, but I could feel feel the pain of history. It was about the humiliation of women of color and how they had suffered in the past and, of course, still suffer today. Echoes, uh, shadows. Now, the movie is Pinky. Pinky was released in 1949. It's made in appropriately black and white. Yes, black and white picture. That helps to make it uh, gravitas. Gives it gravitas. Uh, two of our greatest actors are in it. Uh, the Ethels. Ethel Barrymore and Ethel Waters. Their performances stay in my mind over time. Last night, I saw Pinky again. It was on that Turner Classic Movies. I didn't mean to watch it. I was just thinking, you know, I'd, I'd watch a few minutes, and then I realized, you know, like the book, that I had to finish it, right, that I had to watch it all the way through, even if there were some cliches and stereotypes. Uh, the two Ethels still do it for me. It's a story about a young nurse, Pinky, uh, her African-American heritage is not visible on her face. She looks like a white woman, a European, Caucasian, whatever we're calling it this year. She has come home, returned to her grandmother's home in the South. She has been many years up north in Boston. Her grandmother gave her enough money to go north, right, and she went to school. And she became a nurse, and now she is a graduate nurse. Uh, she calls herself a graduate nurse. And she, all up in Boston, fell in love with a white doctor, a man who uh, doesn't know about her heritage. She didn't lie, but she didn't tell him. Melodrama, right? Of course, it's a real tragedy, and it still happens. Look around. Her grandmother was played by the immortal Ethel Waters. Uh, grandmother is illiterate. She can't read or write. She demands, however, that Pinky accept her heritage, that she be the person she was born to be. She must not reject family, that kind of thing. Uh, grandmother insists that Pinky nurse take care of a dying white woman, Miss M, played by 
Ethel Barrymore. Now, Miss M uh, has been a close friend to Pinky's grandmother. Uh, many years they've been pals. Miss M was once a school teacher, and she's uh, <laughs> she's a sharp and cantankerous. Got a mouth on her. Now, Pinky remembers how Miss M ordered her out of the front yard when she was a little child, you know. And uh, she has, Miss M has a kind of mansion. It's not really a plantation, but it's a big, grand house, southern southern style. And her grandmother said, oh, what are you talking about? Uh, Miss M very fussy about her front yard. She makes all the children play in the back there. Anyway, uh, she does go to check out Miss M, and she tells Miss M that her name is really Patricia. And Miss M says, Pinky is better. Now, of course, Pinky resists taking care of this old curmudgeon. Uh, her grandmother tells her that uh, she has a duty to take care of Miss M, who once nursed her, the grandmother, through a bout of pneumonia. And uh, she says she would have died if Miss M hadn't looked after her, even emptying her slops, that kind of thing. Uh, Pinky does come to care for Miss M. They, <laughs> they have a few laughs. One of Miss M's relatives comes to visit and uh, she doesn't know the good jewelry from the trash, and Pinky looks at her and realizes that ignorance is not limited to one class or group. Uh, yes, I like the humor in the film. Most of it comes from Jake, a local scoundrel. Uh, he, uh, yes, I thought Amos and Andy comes to mind. Um, Jake took some of the money that Pinky's grandmother gave him to mail to Pinky. Uh, the grandmother can't read or write, and uh, so she needed Jake to help her. She makes her living doing washing, huge loads of washing for all the locals, judges and lawyers who figure in the story later, and, uh, of course, for Miss M. Now, the grandmother is what we call a real Christian, what I call a real Christian, that is, she returns good for evil. Now, this is the sort of theme, the sort of thing that critics railed about back in the day, just as they do now. You remember the classic would be uh, Uncle Tom in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom is a real Christian. Uh, he refuses to whip, beat uh, another slave. He says, uh, you may own my body, but you do not own my soul. And uh, Uncle Tom dies because he's unwilling to do the wrong thing. He returns good for evil. And uh, this, just, uh, this just enraged certain critics who, of course, have been talking about Uncle Tom ever since. Uh, it's funny, I think, actually, the 
the idea of Uncle Tom's comes more from the the little plays that came along afterwards. They were exaggerated versions of the shuffling, obsequious slave. Uh, I remember a long time ago, yes, Stanley Crouch. He's a kind of critic who really doesn't like some of the themes uh, in the old stories. He wrote for the New Republic once, and he was just furious over the novel Toni Morrison's Beloved. You remember Toni Morrison got a Nobel Prize for her novel Beloved. The main character, Tetha, the uh, young woman who is a tragic character in Beloved, uh, there's a bit of the story where a young white woman, kind of fey, goofy <laughs> woman, uh, she she comes across the main character, Sethe, in the woods. Seth is running away from slave hunters. She's pregnant, and this white girl helps her give birth to her baby. Now, that stuff just gagged Stanley Crouch. He just couldn't swallow that. I think, I'm trying to remember, he called Toni Morrison a conjure woman. I think he felt that slavery, slavery in these United States was not a subject for a woman writer. Uh, slavery was um, male suffering for some reason. I, I don't know why he uh, disassociated uh, the women from those trials. I guess he seemed to feel that black women have no business using uh, the history of slavery as major themes in their novels. <laughs> Jeez, you know. Anyway, uh, oh dear, I'm off topic. Uh, that's the sort of thing that gets everybody riled up. And uh, it's funny because it's true, none of these films are realistic. Uh, even the books, there are always contradictions. Pinky's not a great movie. It's not not like To Kill a Mockingbird, which is uh, perfectly constructed, and there are no, no really gauche... Well, there's a few in To Kill a Mockingbird, but uh, and that was... I guess those were uh, the kind of contradictions that most people can live with. We know who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. Anyway, in Pinky, the main character is played by Jeannie Crane, a very well-meaning actress. <laughs> I remember her. She's a very pretty um, young lady Hollywood actress. She used to drink sodas at the at the soda fountain down in Laguna Beach when I was in high school. Everybody would run over to the soda fountain to see Jeannie Crane. I remember once, a funny story, uh, there was a guy in Washington, D.C. who stood by the Vietnam Wall, you know, that uh, looks like a tomb, but some monument to the men who died in Vietnam, and he told me a story about the first man to die in Vietnam was one of the uh, advisors, you remember advisors, I think it was a Marine, and uh, he said that this guy was shot by a sniper while the men were watching a movie late at night, and uh, he 
He said he couldn't remember the picture, but he remembered that Jeannie Crane was in the movie. And I thought, I wonder if that was Pinky. I digress. I always digress. I can't stay on subject. Yes, fragmentation. Uh, uh, free association is my downfall. Anyway, this plot in Pinky gives you a protagonist. Uh, it's, what is it? It's obviously the usual heroic plight of the protagonist to fight the system. When Miss M dies, she leaves her estate, her big house and 20 acres of land to Pinky. Uh, she says that Pinky will put it to good use. And of course, Pinky has mentioned once that she would like to um, have a clinic or a, uh, a school. And uh, Miss M used to be a school teacher, right? At the end, of course, in the last scene, this wish comes true and we see Pinker, Pinky ringing the bell for the nursery school and clinic that she turns the land into. A happy ending tied up with a bow. But in the process, of course, uh, she loses her doctor boyfriend, her lover, he can't see why she doesn't want to just split, you know, get away from all this nonsense and become Mrs. Dr. So-and-so, whatever his name was. He just wants to disappear out west. Um, he doesn't want any of the uh, gossip and publicity that is uh, following them. The Boston papers are getting on her case. And, uh, yes... Miss M's greedy relatives are taking Pinky to court, and the media gets wind of it. And there's a lot of talk there, something about Pinky challenging lynch laws, and I can't figure out where that came in the script because it didn't seem to make any sense. I think they weren't talking about literal lynching, but you remember what Clarence Thomas said when he said it was a, a symbolic lynching. Anyway... There's a cousin of Miss M's who's a comic character, uh, Miss Woolley. And Miss M can't stand her. She's a study in ignorance, prejudice, petty jealousy, that kind of thing. She's definitely a cliche, a stereotype. Worst of all, she has bad taste. Pinky, on the other hand, is a natural aristocrat. She's a class act. Her aesthetic sense is... <laughs> Way ahead of Miss Woolies. Now, the movie is full of this kind of thing. Uh, we see the white men treat Pinky with respect until they learn that she uh, has African-American heritage, that she's a colored, as they say. Uh, when they find that out, she's in real danger. Then, when she is seen again as a white, so-called white female... Uh, the white men insist on protecting her. Yeah, right, that's almost as dangerous. Anyway, the character Jake, the uh, actually charming Jake and his girlfriend, what was her name, Rose, Rosalinda or something, they are definitely stereotypes from the 1940s. The Jake is larcenous. 
but uh, charming. Uh, you know, he's always going to pay everything back. And uh, he's just a jolly con man. His girlfriend carries a knife. And she tucks it into her garter, you know, in her stocking. Now, they are bad folks. We know that they're bad, right? Is just defensive. Uh, Ethel Waters, as uh, Miss M. No, 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 she's the grandmother. Pardon me. I'm getting getting goofy these days. Ethel Waters, the two Ethels. Ethel Waters is so dignified. Uh, <laughs> it's not a cliche, but down to the marrow of her bones. She's a great lady. She will not admit in court that she can't read. You know how that goes. Uh, to ask her if she saw the will, you know, that Miss M. wrote, didn't she see it over her shoulder? And uh, grandmother says, Ethel Waters says, I have learned, I believe it is manners, not to be reading uh, things that was not addressed to you. Anyway, the people in the courtroom laugh. Uh, I saw the great Ethel Waters years ago on stage in Member of the Wedding. You remember she played Bernice, the housekeeper. In Member of the Wedding, Julie Harris. You remember the movie? Julie Harris played the young girl, the impossible child. And uh, uh, Ethel Waters played the housekeeper. The woman who takes care of this child and uh, raises her, you know, uses her wisdom to get her through early adolescence. It's a play by Carson McCullers that was very, very big. Uh, let's see, the early 50s was when I saw it. It's a masterpiece. I think that every time Ethel Waters sings His Eyes on the Sparrow, the way she does in that play, His Eyes on the Sparrow, and I know he watches me. I always tear up some awful. There's some gossip. There was gossip in this, uh, on this movie, Pinky, last night. The guy who introduces the movies. He, he had stories to tell. He said, Ethel Waters was nervous during the filming, the shooting of Pinky because her career was in trouble. She, uh, yeah, her career was on the line and she was, uh, wary and very withdrawn, very, very uh, uptight. I can imagine why. That's what the director said anyway. Uh, she was not forthcoming. Ethel Barrymore, on the other hand, was uh, a trace grandiose, you know. She worked on the stage most of her life, and she's one of those actors who thought that movies were beneath her. Many actors in her generation thought that the films were pretty tacky. Anyway, when the director made Ethel Barrymore do a second take, she was very offended, didn't speak to him for days. She said, I'm not going to do it any better. Anyway, uh, I think that's, what is it, a cliche, but it certainly holds up. That's pretty real. Uh, I think that Ethel Barrymore... Hmm, she is, she is so monumental. I don't know what it is about her. Uh, she does seem to me to be kind of special. 
she's, what is that, carved in stone. I saw her in my favorite movie, None But the Lonely Heart, with Cary Grant. And I never recovered from that one. I, I watch it about once a year, None But the Lonely Heart, a uh, script by Clifford Odets. Clifford Odets. Barrymore plays a cockney mother. She goes to jail for her son. She she uh, actually steals for him. Uh, Cary Grant plays the son. Archie Leach was Cary Grant's real name. <laughs> yes. And he was uh, a cockney from, well, let's see, he was from Liverpool, member of the uh, underclass. And this movie shows us what his life might really have been like. Uh, None But the Lonely Heart is his most realistic role. It's very melancholy. He talks with Barry Fitzgerald about the looming tragedy. We we feel World War II is coming along here. Clifford Odets was very much aware of the uh, the common man and what was going to happen to him in the next war. Uh, the mother-son scenes astonished me the first time I saw them when she when she slaps him. I could feel her rage, and then later she's dying in the uh, the jail's hospital, and she says to Cary Grant that she has shamed him. She's so ashamed, and she's shamed him. I think that one of these days I've got to write a book about movie mothers. I just think it's incredible, the cliches, but also the uh, the strength of some of these characters. Uh, even was it Jimmy Cagney's mother in Public Enemy. Wow! She just keeps fluffing up the pillows in his bed while he's being killed by the mob. Uh, I think of Marjorie Maine in Dead End. She plays Humphrey Bogart's mother. And she he comes to visit her. He's a crook, and she says there's nothing he can do to help her but go away and die. In the end, when he gets shot, we hear her screaming, unbelievable screams. Then I remember the mother in Grapes of Wrath, Jane Darwell. You remember at the end of that movie, she's talking about we are the people. We go on forever. Uh, Henry Fonda was the son in that. And uh, at the end when he leaves, yes, she talks to him. She says, now we ain't the kissing kind, son. And they kind of shake hands and then finally touch faces, right? We ain't the kissing kind. Uh, then there was that religious zealot in an American tragedy. And for some reason, I can't remember the name of the movie. Theodore Dreiser spoke an American tragedy. There was a movie with Liz Taylor and Montgomery Clift. Remember, Shelley Winters played the pregnant girlfriend that uh, Montgomery Clift drowns. Anyway, uh Yes, the mother in that comes to visit uh, the young murderer in prison, and she's still using God as her answer, right? She's a religious zealot. Fabulous. Uh, I guess the most, what is it, the most mythic has to be Lillian Gish in Night of the Hunter. She gets a gun, and she goes after Robert Mitchum, 
and uh, she traps him in her barn. She calls the police. She says, I got some, what, critter, some animal trapped in my barn. I just love that. When she's, I've got some some critter trapped in my barn. I don't know if she called him a critter, but we knew what she meant. Anyway, if you ever get a chance to see Pinky, I do recommend it. Uh, I don't know what the next generation is going to make of these things, and I don't know what feminism is going to do to sort things out. Uh, the new mother, yes. Maybe next time we can talk about the new mother. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air same time next week. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. This is about Mexican migration, legal and illegal. It's about our need for truth and feeling for one another. On September 26, journalist, photographer, labor activist David Bacon will clarify Mexican migration issues at a gathering in Oakland. His new book, The Right to Stay Home, has been heartily praised by Eliseo Medina, International Secretary of the Service Employees International Union. Medina says this is a must for organizers, immigrant advocates, and citizens who care. David tells us who got into this mess and what we need to do to fix it. Hosted by Miguel Guerrero, David Bacon will be at Oakland's Asian Cultural Center, 388 9th Street, on Thursday, September 26th. There's wheelchair access. Get advance tickets for this KPFA benefit online at brownpapertickets.com or at a supportive bookstore. Find full info at kpfa.org. For David Bacon, September 26th, Punto.